Hello, everyone, and welcome to Wild Hearts, the podcast dedicated to sharing the stories and lessons from the founders and operators changing the world. Software development was moving super, super fast, but the way that we did security wasn't. And I was adamant there had to be a better way of doing it. I had like $300 in my savings account. I was like, right, fine, I will quit my job and I will build a company. Cool. How hard can that be? That's Laura Belmain, the co-founder and CEO of SafeStack, and this is Wild Hearts. In this episode, Laura Belmain will charismatically share the lessons that stuck with her from fighting counterterrorism. Our storytelling has fueled an incredible community and a bottoms-up cybersecurity go-to-market motion. Our large language models are evolving the cybersecurity landscape. Our companies of all scales can win customers by ensuring their cybersecurity is in check and so much more. And just so you have some context heading into this, SafeStack is an epic New Zealand cybersecurity platform that weaves the essentials of cybersecurity through the software development cycle. With that, let's dive in. Well, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. How are you going? I'm good. How are you, Mason? Yeah, good. I'm excited for today and I wanted to start off right at the beginning of your childhood because you've had a colourful life before SafeStack. I have, yes. And I wanted to just start with what it was like growing up in the Midlands and or what was your relationship like with your mother? I feel like we just started a therapy session, Mason. So, you know, like... We're going to get straight into therapy. We're just going to go deep. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I feel like I should be lying down on a couch. It wouldn't be a podcast if it didn't start with therapy. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Look, I am... I come from a small town in the Midlands uh, that is famous for two things uh, that we laughingly call the family business, and that is car theft and teenage pregnancy. <laughs> I, I kid you not, the only other thing that is notable about my hometown is it has the second highest number of roundabouts in the UK. Now, uh, like I feel like that's, you know, the, the ultimate underachiever medal is second highest number of roundabouts. Yeah, the fact that you know that as a fact says something about the town. Yeah, it, it tells you a lot about that town. You know, I feel like the reason I probably like New Zealand so much is because, you know, I watched Flight of the Concords and went, oh, yeah, you get it. Oh, epic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I grew up there. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with growing up in an area like that. You know, I don't come from the right family. I'm only the second in my entire extended family to go to university. You know, it's that kind of place. Wow. Most people live within two streets of the rest of their family. They, you know, they have that kind of life. My mom had me quite young. That's okay too. These things happen. And it makes for good stories one day down the line. But it means that I have this unusual relationship both with thinking about the world and also with my family. So, you know, my relationship with my family. My mom is a storyteller. Mm. She's the type of person who you go on a bus journey and we were a bus journey family. So that's okay. You go on a bus journey and um, before you know it, she's talking to 15 strangers and somehow you've got an invite to a birthday party <laughs> and you have no idea how that just happened. She's just that person and she doesn't know how she does it either. She just sort of naturally connects with people. And I think I got part of that from her. And the rest of my family, despite, you know, where I come from, they're, they're scrappy inventor types that, you know, my brother went on to be an aircraft engineer. My granddad is a civil engineer by trade, but he's a type of person who would just build things out of whatever was at hand. And those kind of things kind of match together. You become really con connected to people and mission and importance, and you also end up being good at inventing things and, and kind of being more creative with how things work. So yeah, interesting background, but not limiting, I don't think. No. So, Mm. Certainly not. Were you, were you a builder? Uh, yeah. So um, 
my mom was has never forgiven me, but um, I you, do you remember the old days when Game Boys were like old school and didn't have like a backlight or anything? Yes, obsessed. So um, yeah, so <laughs> I had one of those, and it was really annoying to me that I couldn't play it at night because you know it's the UK; it gets dark at like half past three in the winter. And so I took the thing apart and sold it on a little LED, and yeah, I was going for it. It was going to be a backlit um, LED enabled Game Boy, <laughs> and it totally did still work for a while. There was a slight issue with having trapped dust in fairly sensitive parts of it. But yeah, I, I was always trying to kind of bring things back from broken or kind of just make things work a little bit better than they did on their own. So it's just part of who I am. What was Christmas time like? Well, a super fun, obviously. Like all of the households, we had bountiful presents. Uh, no, it, it's a funny time, Christmas. Um, now, when you come from somewhere poor, there's a, there's a kind of, there's an acceptance that not every gift that comes through the house is everything that it seems so you know like knock off perfumes and things are a thing but also <laughs> your parent your parents tend to have a black light you know the cool things that they had in the 70s and 80s yeah and uh, not so much for the disco party times but for the you know swiping it over gifts after they've been lovingly unwrapped before they've been given and then rewrapped again in this process just to make sure they didn't have somebody's phone number or postcode written in that security ink on them because that was a giveaway that somebody was gifting you something that perhaps shouldn't have been theirs to start with. <laughs> like I said, it, it's they make for great stories and, and no harm was done. But it does give you a bit of a view of how security works from a very, very young age. Amazing. What was the first step after leaving the, the family nest? Where did you go from there? Uh, so um, at 16, I needed a job. Um, my mom got sick. Mm. And so I, in my hometown, there's not a lot of options. Most people work in factories or places like that or retail increasingly. But I was working at a bowling alley at the time, literally spraying the spray into shoes after, you mm. know, warm shoes come in, put spray in, give them to more people. Mm, delicious. <laughs> so, and uh, a guy came in and he was just making conversation. He was asking what I was going to do after, you know, college because I was still young. So everyone just assumed I was still in school. And he's like, oh, you should totally apply to my company. Um, he worked for EDS and he said, oh, we have this apprentice scheme for software developers and, you know, you're smart, you should go apply for that. And I had no idea about software at the time, none whatsoever. <laughs> I thought I was going to be a lawyer one day, maybe if I got to finish college um, and go and be Ali McBeal somewhere. And so I went and applied and they made me solve puzzles for an hour, which seemed like the most fun way to spend a job interview. And next thing I knew, I was the youngest COBOL apprentice that they'd had at the Inland Revenue in the UK. Gosh, COBOL. COBOL, yeah. Oh, you know, I see. Yeah, like yeah. the original Grace Hopper gotcha. vintage language, uh -huh. <laughs> which was vintage even when I started out in it. So yeah, um, I spent four and a half years at the start of my career writing software, doing testing and doing environment support for inland revenue, big payment systems. So it was a pretty cool place to start. Amazing place to start. And how did you find yourself fighting cases in counterterrorism? <laughs> so... From there, I decided, um, I got to that point where, you know, I'd been working long enough um, and I was, you know, leading a small group of people, but I didn't have a degree. Mm. And back then it definitely mattered that I didn't have a degree. I was massively underpaid compared to everyone else I knew. And so I was like, okay, cool. I saved up enough money and I'd done my qualifications in night school. So I went off to university and I studied artificial intelligence and robotics before that was a job you could actually have, Wow, which was not my best planning. How did you even source that? As a path. I, I honestly, I just read through the prospectuses for universities. I was like, that sounds nerdy. Cool. Let's do that. And there were literally four of us in our class. It was it was a tiny, tiny specialization back then. Wow. Fun fact for you, Mason. I wrote myself my first piece of AI software 
was a chatbot that could have conversations with me in French. Oh my God. And it could um, grade my French in return so that I could get better. Oh my God. Which I think now looking back with my wise midlife hat on, uh, so I was a very, <laughs> very lonely student. <laughs> also, at the beginning of, beginning of graders, you could have been, I mean, imagine that. Uh, chatbot today. Oh yeah, if if I was if I was ten years later, like <laughs> ten years later would have been an actual job, but at the time it was like, why are you doing this, Laura? This is insane. So there you go. So I I graduated and I wanted to not go back to where I came from. Mm. So I looked around a bit and there was some jobs going for GCHQ, which is the UK equivalent to NSA, so kind of a signals directorate. And um, so I ended up there, and I spent four and a half years there do software development and security stuff in the counterterrorism space, which was very, very rewarding, but a bit intense. Why was it rewarding and a bit intense? Well, I'm really mission-driven. I don't know whether it came from that before or I was already there, but it's it's really empowering to go to work every day knowing that you're doing something that's bigger than yourself, mm. that, you know, when you do something right, people are genuinely, you know, they're not going to get hurt anymore or there's not going to be these horrible disasters or that you've been able to yeah, protect those people who don't even know that they need protecting half the time. So, you know, there's a lot of military folk in my family. So I guess, you know, there's that shared understanding of a, a greater purpose. Mm. But it's intense because of what you're doing. You know, you're processing the current events you see on the news, but at much, much deeper levels. At the time um, I was married and, um, for example, I would be on an operation. So, you know, something urgent is happening. And uh, we got a phone call in the team from the security guard because my husband had had to call in and report me missing because I hadn't come home in two days. Oh, my gosh. And there's no cell phones allowed in government buildings like that. So he had no choice but to go, look, is my wife still alive? Oh, my gosh. And and I was. I was fine. Um, I was living off Diet Coke and vending machine food, as you do. (laughs) Um, But it's that kind of intensity. It's, you know, you... Wow. For the times where you need to be committed and focused, you're very, very committed and focused. So, yeah, um, I, I ended up there. And then, you know, one thing led to another. It, there was Christmas. Um, I'd been working really, really hard. And I was like, oh, you know what? I need a break. Yeah. I'll go to New Zealand for six weeks and just, you know, hang out and maybe get a contract job or something. And that was 12 years ago. So, yeah. <laughs> just fell in love with New Zealand. I did. Yeah. It was the sky. The sky got me on the bus on the way from the airport. Really? It's just weirdly big sky. I love the sky here. It's such a beautiful place. What do you think, how did that experience being in that sort of environment shape how you work today? What were some of the lessons that you still hold on to? Yeah, I think it's shaped me for the good and the bad. I mean, the good is that one of my mentors there, he, he gave me two lessons that have always stuck with me. Firstly, the first thing he did is he gave me all of the painful jobs he didn't want to do in his job. And he said, Laura, you're going to be stuck with these forever unless you automate yourself out of them. And so he he gave me the impetus and the drive to go, actually, I don't need to do boring, repetitive jobs. I can just build stuff and just make that happen. And then I get to the cool stuff. And I live with that today. There's a, a lot of automation in my life um, and in my company where, you know, we don't necessarily need to buy a product to do that. You can automate a lot yourself. Um, and I'm not a very process-driven person, naturally. Mm-hmm. That's not who I am. And so that allows me to compensate for the fact that I'm not very process-driven because things just happen. I don't have to think about them. Mm. So, yeah, that's been very, very good. And the other thing he gave me was that I was very passionate, let's call it that way, when I first started there. I was young, you know, I was 23, super energetic, wanted to save the world. And um, I would always come to him and I'd be like, hey, um, I've spotted this problem and it's everything's going wrong and we need to fix it. We need to fix it right now. And I'd be like this 
big energy of like, oh my God, let's fix all the things. Mm. And I think many of us do that at the start of our career. Totally. And he was like, no, Laura, breathe. You can come to me with a problem, but every time you come to me, you have to give me three options. One is do nothing. And the other two can be anything you like. And you can have a decision. You can have a preference on which one we do. But you have to give me the choice between doing nothing at all and these other options. And that gave me that framework to really prioritize, does something have to be done with this right now? And what would happen if we did nothing? Mm. Um, and that was good for kind of slowing down the frenetic energy. And I think in a startup, there's a lot of those, you know, problems that you really want to fix everything right away, but you can't. Uh, and you have to focus. So it, it's a framework I still use now um, with me and my team. I think on the negative side, when you're surrounded by military folk or where you're that mission focused, you get used to your interactions being very direct. And it's not a, you're not being mean. You're never being mean. Um, but you don't waste time on the small talk and on the fluff around the edges. Mm. And so folks who've not been around that will find it very jarring. So when I'm in like full leader mode, uh, particularly in a crisis, yeah, it will be very fast paced decisions, very direct questions. And it comes from a place of absolute trust and absolute love. But it's just that focus that you get used to in those environments because you don't have hours to waste on like pleasantries and, and all those kind of things. And so people who have come from elsewhere, it takes a little while to get into that with me. Um, and it's something that I've softened with time, but it still catches me out every now and again. Mm. And what was the point where you decided to just stay in New Zealand? Uh, well, I had a kid. Um, so oh, you. You know, the 10 year old came along. Well, she's 10 now. She wasn't then. Yeah. That would have been weird. <laughs> and so had Lily and I'd been working a few jobs, you know, around the place, penetration testing uh, and for KPMG and consultancies, that kind of thing. And yeah, I stopped feeling like anywhere else could be home. Mm. And, and there's something about the Kiwi attitude, something about being here that makes me better. In the UK, right, if you've got an idea, your friends will take you to the pub and they'll buy you a pint and they'll say, here's 10 reasons why your thing will fail. Mm. And they mean it with love, but it's quite cynical. Um, in New Zealand, the people will take you to the pub and they'll buy you a drink and they'll go, yeah, this is crazy, but here's 10 things I can do to help you right now. Here's some connections I can make for you. Love that. And that shift. Love that. Um, yeah, and that, that shift is, that is so fundamental. It's fundamental to our ability to grow businesses because we don't start from a point of being told we're going to fail. Mm. We are a community of people who are willing to share our connections, our knowledge, our time, our energy, just to see if it does work, even if you know the likelihood is low. Gosh, that is so uplifting to hear. But why do you think that's that's part of the the Kiwi gene? I don't know. Um, maybe it's that we're a small island in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. If you you know you look at our frogs and our birds, you know they're not really messing around. They've kind of evolved in their own path, and you know our birds aren't flying because they don't need to, and our frogs aren't becoming tadpoles because they don't need to run away from predators either. So you know we're we're actually kind of a a kind-hearted sort of gentle place with not many threats, and also we're a pioneer place. So. Mm -hmm. While we have a very, very complex history, and I'm not going to undermine that at all, many of the the folks who are second or third generation whose families came here, you know, at various times of unrest all around the world, they came here into a really hostile place and they just got stuff done. Not going to argue whether the, there's goods and bads and a lot of terrible things, but that spirit still, that spirit of, oh my goodness, I'm in the middle of Christchurch and there's no actual town here and it's cold. How do I survive? Has somehow morphed into what we see now as you know the ability to grow businesses and to do new initiatives. What did you learn about 
criminals during your time fighting them? Oh, what do you want to know? What motivates them? Ah, uh, that's easy. What's the harder question then? Well, see, it's a human problem. Crime isn't about, you know, there's no people who are inherently criminal and, and not. It's all about motivation and ability to reach your motivations in the world. So every person, I truly believe that every person on the planet, there is a motivation strong enough that would get them to break the law. And for many people, that motivation will be financial. You know, I want money or need money for something. Political, now don't get me wrong, political isn't necessarily, you know, liberal versus Democrat, whatever. It's not about political parties. It could be that I am mortally offended by the idea of black jerseys. And therefore, any person like you, Mason, who's wearing a black jersey right now, fundamentally offends every part of my being. And I am so moved by this <laughs> hatred that I would act on it. That's what political motivation is. It's nothing to do with logic. It's all about the heart. And we've got revenge, you know, and that can be personal or it could be, you know, somebody denied my insurance claim and I, I feel the need to lash out backwards. Mm. And then there's ego. You know, we live in the, the age of social media where we get kudos and likes and a dopamine hit by being acknowledged. And so, you know, people do crime just to get acknowledged mm. a lot of the time. So, you know, motivation has never changed. Humans have always had those things. We've just changed the technologies and the, the approaches we take to do the crime. Mm. I guess in that backdrop, why did you start SafeStack? What led you to starting that business? Oh, well, I'm not going to tell you like the fake glossy story because that's just rubbish. <laughs> um, in all honesty, SafeStack started on a Thursday afternoon because I had a job. My, my firstborn was 10 months old. I was in a full-time job and I was really miserable. Mm. And I was like, look, I can't just keep doing this. Uh, uh, maybe, you know, my internal barometer for how many stressful days I could have was like zero. I had no tolerance for, for anything. I was like, right, fine. I will quit my job and I will build a company. Cool. How hard can that be? I had like $300 in my savings account. And I literally wheeled my wheelie chair from home down Queen Street in Auckland to the roughest share space I have ever seen in my life. Uh, it was literal pallet desks made out of those pallets that the shipping companies use. It hadn't even been shaved or like sanded. Um, and you had to put a plastic sheet over your desk at night because the dust from the exposed ceiling would cover your computer and stuff in muck. Uh, it was it was really awesome. Wonderful. Mm, super good. Um, and so my, my idea with it was though that I was frustrated because I was frustrated that software development was moving super, super fast, but the way that we did security wasn't. Now this was 2014, um, so almost 10 years ago now. And I was adamant that there had to be a better way of doing it. And so I did, I, I spent five years as a consultant developing the ways that you would do that. It later became known as DevSecOps. I'm not saying I invented that, I was just in the early movement. I uh, wrote a book uh, as part of that called Agile Application Security. And then in 2020, COVID hit, and we all had a bit of a rest and stay at home. Mm. And uh, me and my co-founder, Erica, we were both consultants in the business at the time, and we were like, hmm, what should we do? We could just, you know, do the old kind of Shaun of the Dead type of thing, go to the Winchester, have a pint, wait for it to all blow over. <laughs> um, but instead we were like, you know what? What's always frustrated us is that the only companies that could work with us were wealthy companies who could afford expensive consultants. What if we could turn what we do and what we're able to do inside dev teams consistently around the world into education that would allow any size dev team to do that for themselves. Mm. And so that was the April 2020 and we had it in market in October and now we're two and a half years in. All right. 
I know you love puzzles. Mm. So how did you think about solving that puzzle and bringing that product to market? What did you learn? Oh, I learned so many things. We lovingly refer to our initial product as the Frankenstein product. <laughs> so when you're like me and you're a bit of a scrappy hustler and you kind of, you know, you're from a family of just people who throw things together, that's what you do. You don't try and custom engineer the whole platform from scratch. You you throw together bits of third party systems and you make a thing work. Mm-hmm. And it worked. I wouldn't say it was scalable or particularly long term reliable, but it got the job done. And the other things we learned was quite, you know, and I know people say it's a cliche and people say it all the time. Building the thing is not the hard part. It's then getting people to come. And yeah, the transition for me from being a very deep tech security nerd to then sitting into the CEO role and then having to think about sales and marketing and that that was brutal. That was a mm. brutal transition. It still challenges me today because, mm. you know, you never get to just do the same thing every time. You've got to keep pushing those skills, keep scaling up. Mm. So, yeah, lots and lots of lessons. But I don't regret it. I don't regret the bumps and the mishaps. It was uh, it was a really great way to get something done very quickly um, and prove that there was value in what we were doing. What was that first moment of value to you? First paying customers. Yeah. What were they saying? Um, well, it was just, it wasn't difficult to explain to them. So a lot of folks, you know, outside of the, the security space, outside of the software space, they kind of like, well, why does this even need to exist? Mm. But for a software team, when you're able to speak their language and you can say, hey, look, you care about performance and scaling and usability. Here's how security works and it doesn't have to get in your way. And PS, we're not going to patronize you in our training. We're here to just give you practical things that you can apply to whatever you're doing. It resonates. Mm. Um, and so some of our early customers are folks like ASB and TradeMe who, you know, they've got large teams and they need these lessons across, you know, huge groups of people. And it's not something you can teach yourself consistently. It takes a heck of a lot of effort to build that kind of material and to get that behavioral change. So, yeah, it was it was really good to see that our hunch was valid, that there was an appetite for what we're doing. And now we've got uh, what I love about what we've got is we've got customers from single people and two-person teams all the way up to national level banks and airlines. Wow. And so it's really a universal need across software teams. How did you build trust with those larger customers? Often the pushback for startups is uh, probably not secure. How did you sort of build that trust with them? I think we, well, me and my co-founder, Erica, we are the virtual, well, have been the virtual security officers for high-growth startups all around the world. So we had literally written the playbook on how to do high growth security. It's called security for everyone. You can. My mom is very proud that it exists in the world. <laughs> so we we already had the playbooks. We already had the policies and all of the the things that people care about. That you know, actually, they're more for governance and and things than anything else. But more than that, we had a really skeptical eye. So when we're building things, we're they're asking the questions straight off. So when, you know, you're doing your due diligence with a customer and they're like, explain X, Y, and Z to me. That's easy for us. We've, you know, we've been doing that a while. It's not to say that we over-engineered security to start with. A lot of our security is, you know, as it would be in a young company, it's more custom or improvised or uh, flexible than it would need to be in an enterprise. But we we had a head start because of who we were as people. Mm. And what, what do you think are the points of conviction that developers need to see to value security in their workflow? So... Security is all about respect. Whether it works or not is a respect problem, not, nothing else. So every time we try and put security into a developer's world, we are causing friction. We are interrupting part of a creative process. So an engineer's job is to go and solve a problem in the world. And 
security's job is to remove risk, and that can sometimes mean slowing down creative processes. So when we can show an engineering team that we can put security in in a way that understands and respects what they're already doing and doesn't cause friction unless that friction is really justified, then there's a respect in that decision and there's a respect that they can then understand because it's been articulated to them. So it's not about saying, hey, your code is ugly, developer team, you should feel bad, now you do this. It's about saying, okay, I get your world, let's tweak in a little way, here's the repercussions of this, and this is why it's worthwhile. Mm. And from what you've seen, what are some of the ways that organizations can be best protected? Do you think the, the root starts with the builders inside those teams? The builders have a really important job. I, I literally build a company around that. Mm. But there's also an acknowledgement that there's a role all of us have to play at every role in the organization. And like your most powerful voice in security isn't necessarily your engineers, it's probably your board, it's probably your investors. Now, they don't always understand they have that power. So if you are listening and you are an investor, you have great power, please use it. If they say you shall make time for security, it ripples down. Mm. If they say, actually, this isn't important to us right now, that ripples down too. So those comments, even if made in jest or you know casually in a conversation, matter. So you know the first thing we can do is really understand the power of those words from those executives and those investor levels. The next thing we can do is understand that our brains are rubbish and are genuinely trying to stop us do, doing good security. And that's all of us. So your brain loves dopamine, right? And dopamine comes from novel challenges and things it hasn't seen before. Mm. It does not come from doing the really boring, unsexy basics of security, like choosing good passwords, remembering to let your device update itself. <laughs> and that's why they say, you know, 80% of cyber incidents come from solvable, unsexy problems. Mm. So your whole team, everyone kind of needs to just get on and do the unsexy stuff, even though your brain is going, nope, this is boring, let's do something else. Mm. And I think if you can get that foundation in, that's a really, really good starting point. And then your engineers can start looking at those really juicy problems, those, you know, what are we doing with data? Where's it coming from? How are we storing it? What code are we writing and what's it look like? But we we need a foundation first. Mm. And if I'm a developer and I've just been onboarded to uh, Safe Stack, what are some of the first things that I'll, I'll be learning? Well, it all depends on your level. We have learning paths, which is like the idea that whether you're junior or senior or whether you're a tester or a developer or an architect, there are different things you're going to want to learn. So the nice thing is you can kind of pick your pathway through. Some of the fundamentals we look at are things like how to understand what risk actually means and calculate it, which sounds boring and mathematical, but... Think of it like, you know, understanding what you'd do if a giant bear walked in the door. It's much more practical when you think about it in terms of which part of me is going to be eaten first. Mm. It'll make more sense when people do the courses. You should go look. There's a lot of bears. <laughs> we also teach threat assessment, which, you know, imagine you're in a team and you're planning the equivalent of a bank robbery for your organization. Mm. That's a really powerful tool that you can practically use in your team. No tools required, no, no fancy things. And from that, you can identify what attacks could come, and then you can plan your defenses. And then we have a whole range of courses about how to understand where those attacks could come from and how to protect against them. So it's really, really practical. And you can apply it to any sort of language framework, whether you're working on cutting-edge new stuff, which is always very exciting, or you've inherited somebody else's cutting-edge new stuff from 10 years ago. So your mother was a storyteller. It's, it's pretty clear you're a storyteller. How... 
have you used that superpower in the product? <laughs> I'd just be curious to see how uh, that's sort of flourished in, in your business. Yeah, it, well, it goes through how we teach, right? Um, nobody wants to sit there and be bored to death by training. Exactly, yeah. The best way to teach, especially when it's something to do with risk, is stories. And it's not just like high-tech crime stories, but it's also just interesting things like thinking about history. Um, I'm married to an artist. Um, I spend a lot of time reading the classics and we discuss mythology and all sorts of things. There's a lot to be taken from all of that that directly applies to cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we pick and choose from all over the place uh, and we use it through what we're doing um, in speeches and uh, conferences, at our workshops when we teach and we do practical activities, even on our conference stands. You'll find us literally with a bank made out of Lego, encouraging you to plan a bank robbery there and then on site. Mm. And how do you think the story has changed in the age of generative AI and what it means for secure development? What have you sort of observed over the last six or so months? I think it's interesting. Every story is changing. They change all the time. And people are desperate for the security story to change. But in some ways it isn't. Generative AI is like any other technology that's brand new and shiny. It's very, very exciting right now. Mm. Um, and so there's a lot of hype and there's a lot of talk. But the risks remain exactly the same as any other we faced before. If you've got a big unknown magic box that says insert data to continue and a big button that says go, perhaps putting sensitive <laughs> data into it is not the best plan, regardless of what's inside the box. So, you know, um, that bit hasn't changed. Mm. The guidance is exactly the same as it has always been. I think it's asking some very interesting questions, though, that I don't think the security community has answers for yet. So, you know, data validity and integrity, how can we trust? How can we understand the source of decisions that are made in these systems? And that really does matter. If you're doing a, a very complex system or a system where the output of it will impact on life in some way, so it could harm people or harm organizations, then historically we'd have been able to do a review that looks through that code and understands every step that was taken uh, and see where it should end up. And hopefully every time you run it, the same output should come out. But we're not in that time anymore. And so I think we're going to have some interesting times. There's going to be a lot of noise, but somewhere quietly in the background, there's going to be some folks who are working on understanding these problems and how you qualify and qualitatively review the output of generative AI mm. and how we understand the impact of the training data that went into it. So a lot of work ahead of us, but I think for now, we'll just all enjoy all of the memes and the mid-journey things as they come up and <laughs> just pretend that counts as facts. Yeah. What have you observed in the way that criminals are using it or maybe it's too early to... Oh, it's not too early, mate. Yeah. It's not too early at all. In fact, my husband's terrified of this because there's so many conference talks of me out on the internet now that it wouldn't be very difficult to train a generative AI to sound <laughs> like me. Um, so he's like, Laura, don't use don't use voice ID for anything anymore. Like, yeah, that's, that's a fair point. Because, you know, back in the day, you're told to spot a scam by looking for like the details that are wrong in an email. Yep. You know, the, the URL is looking fishy and that thing's spelt wrong and no, you're not a Nigerian prince. <laughs> but actually, if you ask the generative AI, hey, here's a sample of three emails. Can you write me an email in this style? It's going to do exactly that, mm. uh, which means it's very, very likely that we're going to see incredibly convincing phishing attacks. It's going to be the case that it's not just the case that we get an email from our boss, but maybe a phone call. 
And we're already seeing outlier cases of this, and some of it's media hype and some of it isn't. But the criminals are not silly. Criminals will use whatever technology is available to them to get the job done. And so this is easily accessible free technology. Mm -hmm. And they will continue to adapt and use those things wherever they can. What else? Well, that's what else are they going to do? Oh, I don't know, Mason. Who knows? I think it's going to be a very exciting time. I, I love watching it. Yeah. And, you know, I don't watch it with any hubris. There's no like sense that this, you know, I'm better than this. Oh, goodness, no. Like every time that something bad happens in the world, I'm like, oh, my goodness, that could have been anyone I know. Let's learn from that. Why are you excited? Why am I excited? Mm. The world's an exciting place. If, if, if you're in technology right now and you're not excited about the potential amazing things that are happening right now, then just become a plumber. Like you'll earn as much money and you're still, you know, to be really crude, it's the same premise. You know, you're still shoveling other people's junk around. So you may as well just get on with it. Yeah. For me, like the ones like, I don't care about space particularly. It's not my jam. But AI assisted medicine, that is interesting to me. So, you know, the idea that we can review scans of um, mammograms and look for early indicators of breast cancer without needing a specialist. That's awesome, especially in a country where we don't have enough specialists. Mm. Anything that's going to equalize or speed up outcomes in medicine, that's fantastic. Uh, Self-driving cars, I think, is a good thing because, you know, long term, there's some really interesting things that can happen when you're not as dependent on owning a car and being able to operate it yourself. So, yeah, I'm I'm genuinely nerdily excited about technology. I, I feel like all of the things I used to read as a kid are coming to life in front of me the good and the bad. Mm. And uh, yeah, I think it's a pretty cool time to be a technologist. Oh gosh. I'm just fueled with so much energy right now. <laughs> it's just an amazing, uh, there's this like unusual like layer of just genuine excitement of fresh customer insights at the bottom level. And then the broader challenges that come with the macro economic climate. And I'm keen to sort of get your insight on how do criminals behave in that macroeconomic context, mm -hmm. are they more aggressive or are they less aggressive? I would say, I'm not sure if it's aggression, but there's definitely an increase in volume. There's never any certainty, and people will have strong opinions and feelings, but I'm not certain that there is definitely an uptick in the amount of things that happen or the amount of things that succeed. Mm. It could go either way. And what I mean by that is uh, they're taking advantage of a change in psychology. They're taking advantage of the fact that people are struggling, that they're distracted, that there are other things going on. And so that could mean they're attacking more. It could just mean we're more susceptible to falling for things at this point. There's about eight psychological traits that they're very well documented, both in marketing, ironically, and in social engineering, which is what penetration testers call marketing. <laughs> and so social engineering is essentially lying, cheating and stealing human to human. And there's eight principles that you use in a con or in a scam that can influence a person's behavior and get them to comply with you. They range from things like authority to reciprocity. So, you know, if I give you something, you're more likely to give me something back because of that weird, you know, relationship we sort of form with each other without realizing it. Hmm. So there's these eight principles. And what we see is in times of crisis, authority, scarcity, these kind of influences really work really well. So people will have more hope that, oh, maybe I'll win Lotto this month. Maybe someone will give me a tax refund because it'll make a big difference to me right now. So that little bit of skepticism that you might have on a normal day erodes a little bit. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they, they're going to take advantage. They will take advantage of any current affairs that are going on. 
they'll take advantage if you happen to be in the press, you know, you happen to be there. I was having a lovely chat yesterday with a gentleman from uh, a Kiwi SaaS company who they were attacked just to make money off the SMSs that are sent in their app. So it had nothing to do with their platform at all. Mm. It had to do with the fact the attacker had figured out they could make a fraction of a, you know, a percent of a, a an amount of every SMS that was sent from this app. And so off they went and sent a lot of SMSs. All right. So it's creativity that's bred from circumstance and then increased effectiveness that comes from our own state in these hard times. What I've observed is that some of the events that we've spoken about are just driving cyber as a mission critical requirement to now close a customer. And this is sort of happening at, at all levels. What would your advice be to startups now with this increased level of, I guess, priority and what they need to build into their product yeah. to, I guess, arrive at that point where they can actually be bought um, from customers at different sizes? Yeah. Well, in the words of Douglas Adams, don't panic. So while it is increasingly important, it doesn't mean that you have to go and hire a person right now. In fact, that might be the worst thing you could do in these times is to go and hire a really expensive person in a very big niche like security. Mm. You know, those people are not cheap and they're not easy to find. And unless you're at the right stage, they're not going to have enough to do. Mm. There is a really great checklist. I'll share some uh, link with you. Mason, you can put it in the notes. That'd be awesome. It's called the SaaS CTO uh, security checklist. And by stage of organization, so all the way from Angel all the way through to Series DE, there are a list of the basic controls that you want to have in place in your organization at each stage that are sort of relative to where you are. Mm. So that's your foundation starting point. And 90% of those you can do yourself. No expensive consultants are required. Just tick off one a week, get through them. If you are in a regulated field, you do need to go after that compliance scheme. So, for example, if you're trying to sell to the US at a, a government level, either a state or federal, you're going to need to go through state map or fed ramp, uh, state ramp or, or fed ramp. Mm. And there's no negotiating that. We can't bluff our way around it. So be prepared for that. Get the standards. Make sure you understand them. If it's a more optional scheme you're looking at, so it's quite common for SaaS companies to go after things like SOC 2 and ISO 27000, because those are, you know, very well respected and they might cut down the due diligence time in those sales conversations quite a bit, then those are really great things to go after. But remember, there's three pathways to doing one of these certifications. The first one, you do the work yourself. It's just an audit. You can get the standard. You could even, you know, pay the $500 and go on a, an implementer's course for some of them and just get it done. You, your CTO, some people on your team. It's not glamorous work, but it's not rocket science either yeah. um, next up you could go and use a platform for it and they range from you know super cheap a few hundred dollars a month to a few thousand dollars a, uh, a month to you know tens of thousands depending on the scale of what you're trying to do and how many standards you need to meet they can be a really good investment because external help and consultants can cost you a lot of money so don't just jump straight into calling up a company and going hey yeah i want to get iso help because that's like giving a consultant a blank check. They will be very happy to help you. <laughs> so if you can either do some of the work yourself or use one of these platforms, I have no commercial interest in any of those platforms, then you are able to, when you do need that external help, be very specific on the help you need. So getting to one of those certifications could really speed things up, but so can just good communication, having a solid set of reusable answers that you generate over time, and making sure that you follow something like the CTO checklist so that you've got those basics in place. Because that's what they're looking for. 
your customer isn't trying to trick you. They don't actually care if you tick box number three or box number four on an audit. What they want to know is, does buying from your organization reduce or increase my current risk? Mm. They're hoping that it either stays the same or it reduces. So give them some confidence that that's the case. And if we go up in terms of the size of the scale of a company, maybe let's use a product manager, for example, what do you think their role is in cybersecurity? And sort of how should they be thinking about bringing some of those points in into the culture of the business? Mm. Well, so I, product managers are really interesting and we never, ever talk to them in security. We're just, we're terrible humans. <laughs> But they're interesting because they are an incredible force of power inside the the direction of the product. You know, they see the business side, they see the development side, they see the roadmap, they see the near term and the long term. Now, there is a trend, an increasing trend, where customers are expecting security to be built into your products. You know, and that could be SSO, that could be this or the other. You need to anticipate that expectation. It is no longer something that you can put in later um, and, you know, charge a bit more for. There's a, a big push for that just being included by default. So have a look around at what the market is doing with the baseline expectations of security. Now, your customer is never going to come to you on day one and say, hey, I'm here because you do SSO. They're here because of your other product features, because of what you do. But they tangently expect the security to be there, even if they don't mention it. And then they're disappointed, weirdly, later when that expectation is not met. Mm. So I would find for whatever industry you're in, what are the expected minimums for product security? And then, you know, incentivize putting them through your products. Now, they're not going to earn you more money most of the time, but they can be the difference between whether you're selected or not. They can be the difference between whether they buy one or two seats and that, or whether they bring on the whole enterprise. Um, so rather than looking at, can we charge more for this or, or are we going to you know, sell more directly because of it? Just think of it as table stakes now. That's what we have to do. And also don't be afraid, product folk, to have a chat with some security folk and get a bit of education because it can really help you understand the decisions you make in product and how they can impact the overall security, mm -hmm. which might change your decision in the end. What would your advice, so in the backdrop, you've built a wonderful community and you've totally used that to the company's advantage. One of the areas of friction for security startups is getting to market and I guess building that trust with um, those larger businesses in particular. But I guess I'd love to learn more about your go-to-market approach. I know that you're still learning, mm. but any insights that you can share? Sure. Uh, I'd love to learn your view on that. Oh, we screwed up so many times. There's lots to share. <laughs> um, so when we first started out, we, you know, when you say security, everyone thinks like security is one thing, but it's kind of like saying I'm going to move to Europe. <laughs> it's a huge space and each little bit of it has its own sort of like temperament and, and culture and category conventions. And we're in the AppSec space. When we first started out, we were alongside, you know, we did an accelerator. We, you know, met with peers who were also building new companies and nobody else was in AppSec. So we kind of just thought we were like everyone else. And so we started trying to sell to the CISO and we started with like a really heavy sales led approach and outbound. And we did, uh, I think we were doing like 400 outbound calls a month and getting zero meetings. Mm. Like nothing was working. It was an absolute mess. And then we realized that wasn't our buyer at all. Uh, we're unusual for a security company that our buyer is actually normally the VP engineering or CTO. And they don't want to be sold to. In fact, they're mildly allergic. They also don't want to be explicitly marketed to. 
Um, and if there's any engineers listening or you've got engineering teams, go ask them. They, they are absolutely very, very opinionated about this. And that's good. Mm-hmm. And what I realized was that to sell to people who were essentially just like me, I needed to sell to people like me. And I wouldn't pick up a cold call. And I don't care about your marketing emails, as pretty as they are. What we needed to be was authentically in the community, sharing value with no strings attached. We needed to give people the chance to explore the product in a way that they, you know, they could do their research before they came to talk to someone. We needed to be transparent with our pricing. Now, a lot of those things are faux pas in security. If you look at the rest of the industry, there's a heck of a lot of like, please contact sales to continue motions in in place. Mm -hmm. But by doing that, we created a trust that I think is really, really essential for our growth. So we have, uh, you know, a freemium plan. We do that for two reasons. Firstly, teeny tiny companies, you know, the the series, well, let's call them the angel companies at this point, the teeny tiny scrappy little three people things, they need to do security too and they've got no budget. Trying to sell to them is just, that's silly, don't do that. Mm. So give them the free version, give them just some essentials, they can get started and that goodwill and that standing, it cultivates with them, they grow with it. And so as they grow, our hope is that they will grow into us. Mm. We have an individual plan which allows those individuals who are super motivated to go do their thing. And then the way that we follow on with this, so it's a PLG motion, you know, by all respects, is that our primary channels for marketing are things like podcasts, our conferences, are the interactions that have very high contact with people. So you're, you're intentionally putting yourself somewhere where they can argue with you. Because they've got feelings and opinions and they want to be heard. And that's part of their buying process. Mm. So, yeah, that, that's that's where we're on our, our journey so far. It's hard. And every country has its own culture with doing this. So there's a lot to learn. But it's quite freeing now that we are able to say, hey, we don't need to behave like the playbook security company. We can just be the company we need to be to get to our particular audience. Love that. Thank you for that advice. What have you learned in the way that decisions are being made within companies um, about cybersecurity. You mentioned that it's sort of shifting from the CISO to the head of engineering. Tell me more. So it's interesting. So I wouldn't say your cyber decisions are shifting, but in the case of AppSec, there there is an interesting move going on. So the, the software development community is trying to own that space more because they have the most impact on it. They have the most to gain and the most to lose by it going wrong. Mm. But historically, the CISO and the the engineering teams don't know each other. They don't play well together. They don't speak the same language. And so when we sell particularly to larger organizations, while we might be dealing primarily with the engineering team, we'll probably also bring in the CISO just as kind of a gesture to say, hey, do you know your engineers are doing this? And mm. this is super exciting. And you might want to help them with the budget thing because... You know, if you go to a CISO and ask them how many times their devs have come to them and said, hey, I want budget for a security thing, it's close to nothing. <laughs> but if we can go to the CISO and go, hey, your your devs are actively, by their own choice, coming and doing some security, you might want to get onto that. They are super happy. Yeah. Um, so in a way, we're kind of building some cultural bridges going on there. I think the other change that's happening is there's a much bigger awareness of the importance of application security. So... You know, we've had third-party dependency risks happening all over the place, you know, where things like Log4j a few years ago, where not just the code your team is writing, but the code that they use could be vulnerable or your third parties could be vulnerable. And that's shifting that focus uh, to more of a, 
you know, well, what are we built from? Where is our exposure really? Um, uh, and that's that's a big move for security. There's a lot for them to unpack there. Totally. Yeah, I've observed this a world where people are integrating with so many different applications and synthesizing information between and, and talking with each other. And I don't know if you have anything to add onto that with how that impacts, I guess, the risk level or the exposure to risk. And if there's anything companies can do at the beginning, because often that's forgotten and assumed. Absolutely. We we very tongue in cheek use a puppy analogy for this. So every piece of software you get in is like getting a new puppy and it's really fun and it's really exciting and they can do new <laughs> tricks and everyone is going to be super happy. But every puppy comes with the responsibility of looking after it and cleaning up after it, feeding it. Mm. And so every single third party technology you bring in is another puppy. And it's fun when there's one or two and when there's 40 of them, you're going to have a mess. And you've got to think through how you manage that in a scalable way. It's not saying don't use them. It's saying make good decisions as to when you pull something in. Be prepared to say no, even if it is a shiny new technology. If the risk is there, just say no to it. Do something else. And then once you have it, you have to keep reviewing and see if that risk has changed. Because a lot changes in software every single day. And if we make a decision and then two years later we haven't revisited it, it may not be the same outcome as we would have expected two years previously. Mm. If we cast our minds to 2033 and we're all cyborgs, cool. what's SafeStack's impact in that world and how do you see the business in that 10-year dream? Oh, there's investors listening to this because they're going to hate this answer. Hello, investor types. Um, <laughs> come talk to me. You're going to have feelings and opinions. Um, I don't believe in 2033 people will know that SafeStack as a company is a thing. They, I don't think that's the important thing. We're not building a legacy company and we're not building Microsoft, but SafeStack will be a huge impact. So when you get a recipe book from a family member, just going to the last analogy, why not? Let's do it. And halfway down that favorite recipe to make, you know, your favorite cake, there's an instruction scribbled out and somewhere it says, add more sugar here. Yeah, That's what security is. Security is the amendment to a recipe that helps make something even more incredible. Mm. So at the moment, we're already in 1,700 organizations in 79 countries. We're two years in. There are 30 million software developers in the world right now. And what if we could convince every one of them to do one hour of security every two weeks and make security that little pencil note in whatever amazing technology they're building? That's what I want for us. Mm, that helpful kitchen hand. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a very gentle, it's a very subtle market penetration but it is an extensive global one. Mm, awesome. On that, thank you so much for your time. That was an amazing hour well spent. <laughs> You're quite welcome. I had fun. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If you left with more energy than when you started, we'd be super grateful. If you liked, subscribe, left a review, even shared it with a friend. In case you want to keep in touch, share feedback or even a pitch deck, I'll leave my blink card in the show notes you to get in touch. Thank you so much for listening once again, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Godspeed.